The language we use is powerful. It represents our beliefs about ourselves, others, and the world around us. I'm not talking about making sure that you're PC or being professional, and this isn't about semantics or blowing smoke up someone's ass either. I'm talking about seeing the potential in every situation, choosing to focus on the positive, committing to empowering beliefs, and using asset-based language. Here's a classic example from when I was a kid. Calling someone bossy. Which we all probably know better than to do today. Yes, it happened to me on more than one occasion. But now when we see a child who exhibits the same behaviors as I did, we might call them a leader. And that choice of words is powerful. I mean, when I was called bossy, it was meant as a criticism. It was negative, and as a result, I tried to temper that part of me, the part that had a vision and wanted to inspire and activate others into action and to help me achieve that vision. I can only imagine how I might have thought about myself differently if I had been told I was a leader and then had those same qualities cultivated. Could I have worked on my delivery? Yes. Could I have improved my collaboration skills to incorporate my friends' visions with my own? Absolutely. But still, by swapping out the term bossy for leader, I bet I would have seen the character traits I embodied as a good thing instead of something to be ashamed of or in need of changing or fixing. Perhaps you were told you were too shy or argumentative or not good at sports. Whatever it was, We all have something we'd like to be different about ourselves, and I bet if you take a closer look at where that seed of necessary change was planted, that it was something someone told you when you were young. Today's episode is all about how the language we use contributes to the results we have and the outcomes we see. So if we want to bring out the best in our students, if we want to empower them to be the best they can be and realize their potential, then it starts with the language we use with them. Have you heard this powerful statement? The way we talk to our children becomes their inner voice from Peggy O'Mara. It's a good one. And I know firsthand how true of a statement it is. I bet you do too. What have people said to you that stuck with you and become your inner voice? And what are the ways we can talk to our math students to empower them as they encounter challenges and successes along the path to math mastery? This topic is important because our words will become their inner voice. They already have. I'm Chrissy Allison, former middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. 
If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach. So let's go ahead and jump right in. always trying to figure out the answers to these questions. Am I good? Do you accept me for who I am? Am I valued? When we use deficit thinking or deficit language, we inevitably come out the other side with a criticism or at a minimum a judgment, and that sends the message that they are not good, not accepted, and not valued as they are. Sorry if I sound like a downer here, but from where I sit, using deficit language when talking about math students is way too common. I haven't always been this aware of the impact of deficit language, nor was I as attuned to it. But now that I'm more woke to the idea, I want to share the insights I've had on the topic. I know there is concern that we're raising a generation of kids who expect a trophy every time they show up, and no, I'm not advocating for that. Nor am I suggesting we hide students' growth areas from them or pretend they've mastered grade-level skills and standards if they haven't yet. But I am saying that we can be conscious of the language we use as we communicate with students to help them develop empowering beliefs about themselves. Remember, they're taking their cues from us, so I guarantee that the mottos and responses you model in class will soon come out of your students' mouths. So what do you want them to say when they encounter a rigorous math problem or face a challenging moment on the learning journey? And here's a hint. It might be a mirror of your own language. Let me illustrate with an example. Your student just handed in a test and says to you, I know I failed that test. I'm never going to get it. You glance over their answers, and it does look like there are quite a few that are incorrect. How could you respond from a place of compassion, honesty, and empowerment? Here's what dishonesty might sound like. Oh, no, you didn't. I'm sure you did great. A disempowered response. Yes, it looks like you did. Next time, you should probably pay attention more in class and do your homework. I know none of us wants to be this harsh, but have you ever found something like this coming out of your mouth in a moment of frustration? I'm not proud of it, but there are definitely times I've responded from a place of disempowerment, and I guarantee it will happen again. No one's perfect, so let's not try to hold ourselves to that bar. Here's a third option, this time with the goal to balance honesty, compassion, and empowerment. Gosh, I can tell you're not feeling great about that test. But remember what we always say in this class, the only failure is giving up. Everything else is a learning experience. I can see from your answers that you understand what a ratio is and how to represent it. It looks like the next step for you is to work on finding equivalent ratios. How do you think you could learn from the problems on the assessment? And how can I support you? Obviously, you'll give it your own flavor based on your personality, your students, the relationships you have, etc. But hopefully you can hear the difference between those three. It's the equivalent of getting feedback after a classroom observation like this. 
you need to have better classroom management. The students were disengaged most of the lesson. Or alternatively, something like this. I noticed that the students who were tuned into the directions got started on the problem right away. They seem to put a lot of effort into the task, which makes me think it was accessible and interesting to them. There were about 10 students who only started working after you gave several group reminders and individual prompts. And I imagine that's frustrating. Plus, it takes a lot of time and effort on your part. Would it be helpful to brainstorm some ways to engage more students sooner? Just as you and I like people to interact with us from a place of assuming goodwill and with an asset-based lens, so do our students. And so, in turn, I'm encouraging you to be aware of the language you use and work to replace deficit language with asset-based language. So how do we do that? Well, the first step is to recognize deficit language when we hear it. Let's get on the same page about what deficit language sounds like. I'm going to share a few examples, but please don't worry or beat yourself up if you've said any of these things. And please, try to not get defensive. The good news is that you're not alone. We've all said or thought these things at one point or another. And the bad news is that we've all said or thought these things, which means we're risking our students getting the wrong idea about their capabilities when it comes to doing rigorous grade-level work. And not to scare you, but there are big implications for this. Okay, so take a deep breath and try to keep an open mind. Here's what deficit language sounds like. My kids can't do that. My class is too far behind to do grade-level work. I teach the low kids. My kids can't handle discussion. They'll be off task. My students don't do homework. My kids have huge math gaps. That's too rigorous for my students. That would never work in my class. My students give up too easily. At my school, kids don't value their education. My students are three or four years behind in math. My kids can't read, so they struggle with word problems. Even if you think these statements are true, or even if you don't say them in front of your students, or you only say them in the teacher's lounge, or you make sure you don't even say them out loud, they reveal deficit thinking. Even if they stay in your own head, it's what you're saying to yourself about the capacity of your students. And it makes a difference. And not in a good way. How does our thinking make a difference? To answer that, I'm going to share a short excerpt from Robert T. Tauber's book, Classroom Management, Sound Theory and Effective Practice. In the book, Tauber references Robert Rosenthal's work. Rosenthal was the first psychologist to systematically study how teachers' expectations can affect the performance of the children they teach. He was also a Harvard professor, and in 1964, he did an experiment that helped elevate the concept of the self-fulfilling prophecy, or SFP. It reads, Robert Rosenthal did much to call attention to the SFP among educators in his classic book, Pygmalion in the Classroom, 1968. In this book, he and his co-author, Lenore Jacobson, describe an experiment in which elementary teachers' expectations of students were manipulated. 
the two researchers, presumably using the results from a test with the impressive-sounding title Harvard Test of Inflected Acquisition, which had been administered school-wide, led the teachers in 18 classrooms to believe that approximately 20% of their students were expected to bloom academically and intellectually during the next school year. In reality, the test was a relatively new intelligence test titled the Flanagan Test of General Ability. The test results, of course, were never actually the basis for identifying which students were designated to bloom. Instead, the designated student bloomers were randomly assigned so that the only differences between the bloomers and the rest of the student body were in the minds of the teachers. When retested later using the same test, the designated bloomers did in fact show intellectual gains. At the end of the school year, when asked to describe the classroom behavior of their students, the children from whom intellectual growth was expected, i.e. designated bloomers, were described positively by their teachers as having a greater chance of being successful in life and of being happier, more curious, more interesting, more appealing, and better adjusted. On the other hand, when the non-bloomer designated students bloomed, and some did, these same teachers described these students negatively, less likable, less likely to succeed in life, less happy. So once again, why does our thinking make a difference? Because our thoughts represent our beliefs, and our beliefs lead to our actions, and our actions lead to the outcomes that affect our students' lives. Let's take one of the examples of deficit language I shared earlier and follow this line of thinking all the way through. My class is too far behind to do grade-level work. If you believe this is true, it will likely lead to some fear of what would happen if you gave students on grade-level problems. Maybe you'd be afraid that students will disengage or that all the students would need your help and attention at the same time and there won't be enough of you to go around. Or maybe you anticipate that the entire lesson will go over their heads and they'll end up learning nothing. So what do you do? Give them work that you think is at their level, which is likely below grade level work if your belief is that on grade level work is too difficult. And if that's the case, then what is the likelihood that they will master grade level concepts and skills? I think we can all agree that the chance is low. And voila, you can see how the belief, my class can't do grade level work, leads to the results of students who are unable to do grade level work, namely because they weren't given the chance. So you can see how it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You created the reality you believe to be true in the first place. And the worst part is that you took the kids along for the ride. Well, hopefully not you, but I'm describing what could happen if a teacher adopts the belief that their class can't do grade-level work. So let's have a redo, as we like to say in my house. Let's go through it a second time, only this time we'll choose to adopt an empowering belief accompanied by asset-based language. Imagine this. What if instead a teacher chooses to believe, my students can be successful with grade-level work with the right support? It feels more hopeful and empowering, right? And for me, it ramps up my determination. What actions might you take if you believed students could be successful and if you were feeling hopeful? Well, you'd likely do some strategic planning to figure out what support students need and how to structure their learning accordingly. As an aside, in this case, I'd recommend providing grade-level problems with a focus on planning for accessibility and discussion. 
I'll link to a free resource bundle I have to help you do just this. You'll find it at the top of the show notes page for this episode over on mindfulmathcoach.com. Okay, back to what would happen if you had this belief and took these actions. What results do you think you'd achieve? I think you'd end up with students who are successful with grade-level work, just as your belief predicted. It reminds me of that famous quote by Henry Ford. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Or in this case, whether you think they can or you think they can't, you're right. Crazy how this works. And empowering. I mean, when you look at it this way, it feels like the possibilities are endless, right? For both you and your students. If you want something, I hope you go for it. But first, take a few minutes to examine the beliefs you have around it. And if you discover that you have some deficit thinking going on, kick it to the curb. It's not going to serve you. Then, replace it with empowering beliefs expressed with asset-based language. Similarly, we all have hopes and dreams for our students, so it's important to examine our beliefs and expectations of what they'll be able to accomplish. With that in mind, let's revisit the examples of deficit language I gave earlier and hear them after they've received an asset-based makeover. My kids can't do that. Could be. I'll need to use some strategies to ensure all students can access the learning. My class is too far behind to do grade-level work. Could sound like. I'm planning to integrate important content from previous grades as we engage in grade-level work. I teach the low kids. Becomes. Many of my students have negative math identities due to previous experiences. One of my goals is to help build their confidence and skills simultaneously. My kids can't handle discussion. They'll be off task. Could be. We haven't done much discussion in our class up to this point, so I'm going to provide some sentence starters to help students link their comments together. My students don't do homework. Could become. I'm still experimenting with ways students can practice the skills at home and get the support they need. My kids have huge math gaps. Gets replaced with. I'm working to prioritize the most critical prerequisite skills and understandings my students need to access grade-level content. That's too rigorous for my students. Could sound like. My students will likely need some support to access this task given their current skill set. That would never work in my class. Becomes. I'm anxious about how that would work in my class because we haven't tried it before, but I'm willing to give it a shot. My students give up too easily. Could be. We're focused on building our perseverance muscles to stick with it, even when it's tough. At my school, kids don't value their education. Gets replaced with. I'm frustrated because I feel like I don't know how to reach all of my students. When students don't participate in the lesson, I'm not sure how to engage them and meet their needs. My students are three or four years behind in math. Could be. My students have a lot of unfinished learning from previous grade levels, but I know we can accelerate their learning with focus and strong teaching. 
my kids can't read so they struggle with word problems, turns into, I plan ways for students to build background knowledge and vocabulary they'll need to make sense of word problems. Again, I'm encouraging all of us to catch our deficit thinking and replace our deficit language to empower students, to anchor our actions, and to create better outcomes with student learning. I hope you take on this task with me. One note before we close out. I try to use asset-based language as much as possible when I'm talking about math teaching and learning, and I hope that can be a model for other math educators. But to be completely honest, I've struggled a little with what language to use as I create content for teachers, whether it's naming podcast episodes or naming free resources or trainings and in workshops. Why? Well, deficit language is so prevalent in education right now, and I'm afraid that if I only use asset-based language, it won't resonate as much with the people that I'm hoping to support. And I definitely don't want to miss out on the opportunity to support people because they're not sure what I'm talking about if I use a phrase like unfinished learning and they haven't heard it before. I'm mentioning this in case you see me using phrases like math gap or are your kids behind in social media posts or even on my website. I wanted you to know where I'm coming from, which is to meet people where they are and then inspire them to shift their language over time. All right, that's it for today. If you want to learn more, go to www.mindfulmathcoach.com forward slash episode 11, that's a one and another one, to access the show notes for this episode. At the top of the page, you'll see a link to my free resource bundle to help you increase access to grade level math without added stress and time-consuming planning. The resource includes 10 strategies to bridge the gap to grade-level math and a planning guide for discussion-based math lessons, so be sure to grab it if you haven't already. In closing, I want to extend an invitation to you to join me on the journey to provide equitable math learning experiences and outcomes for students of color. If you enjoyed this episode and want to make sure you don't miss the next one, head over to mindfulmathcoach.com and sign up to receive weekly reminders for new episodes. You know, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, and oftentimes the math improvement journey and the journey toward an equitable and just society can feel a thousand miles long. That's why I'm so glad we're on this mindful math journey together, and in particular, why I'm glad you've chosen to take a single step forward with me today by listening into this episode. Thanks for tuning in. 